Welcome to the Drop Time Report. Turn up the volume and listen to amazing stories about big bucks and the hunters who harvested them. Here is your host, outdoor writer, Tracy Breen. Welcome to the first ever episode of the Drop Time Report. I'm your host, outdoor writer, Tracy Breen. In this podcast, we're going to focus on big bucks and the hunters who've taken those big bucks. Over the course of the last 20 years, I've spent my career writing articles for publications such as Buckmasters, North American Whitetail, Peterson Bowhunting, Bowhunter Magazine, Bowhunting World, and many other publications. And the stories I enjoy writing the most are about hunters who've killed big bucks and the story behind the big buck that was taken. And so that's what much of this podcast is going to be about. I'm going to interview hunters who have found success. Uh, they've killed the buck of a lifetime, or maybe they've killed many, many monster bucks. And we're going to tell those stories. Um, in this very first episode, we're going to interview Tracker John. Tracker John is probably one of the best-known whitetail trackers in America, and he actually makes his living tracking deer throughout the Midwest. Uh, he lives in New York. Each fall he goes and spends his time uh, in Pike County, Illinois, in the areas around there, uh, tracking big bucks. He works for many outfitters, as well as TV shows and average Joes who kill big bucks. And when they discover, hey man, I'm, I'm having trouble finding this deer, uh, they call in Tracker John. Tracker John has been a friend of mine for many, many years. I've done articles uh, on him for North American Whitetail, for Buckmasters, and many other publications. And I thought he would make a great first interview because he has found many 200-inch deer, uh, many deer in uh, 190s plus. Uh, he has some incredible stories, and some of his recovery recoveries have just been amazing. You know, he's been called in days after a deer was shot and manages to put the pieces of the puzzle together and find that deer for the hunter. Uh, he hunts, or excuse me, he tracks with um, bloodhounds as well as uh, one German shepherd. And so we're going to talk about uh, some tips and tactics as it relates to how to be more effective at tracking your deer, uh, when to actually make the call and hire a tracker, and we're also going to discuss the biggest buck he ever found uh, for a hunter, which was a 220-inch-plus deer um, he found in Illinois. I recorded this interview way back in October before things got busy for John, because once the rut kicks in, he's a very hard guy to get a hold of. Uh, so let's get right to it and get Tracker John on the phone. Welcome to the show, John. How are you? I'm doing good, Tracy. I'm uh, sitting on the porch of my tracker shack, three bloodhounds laying in front of me, beautiful fall day, waiting for the next call. And it's uh, youth season in Illinois right now, correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, this weekend, and uh, of course, there's uh, also bow hunting uh, going on as well. And uh, have you found a few deer so far this fall? Yes. Now, of course, early season tends to be slower activity-wise. There's not that many people hunting. 
so we get some calls, but it's, you know, obviously it's not like when things really heat up during the rut, but yeah, we've been out on some, uh, tracked some big bucks already, made some recoveries. So, um, pretty, pretty typical, uh, early season so far. Cool. Cool. Now you've been at this game, uh, a long time, arguably, uh, longer probably than any other whitetail tracker in the industry. Um, give us a little history. How many years well, I'm, have I'm you not been say tracking? Longer than anybody else. There might be a few that have been in the game as long. Uh, not doing exactly what I'm doing though here with a trophy oriented uh, trailing in, in, in the Midwest. Um, that's probably for that. I'm 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 probably the by far the most experienced, I would say. Uh, but I've been at it a long time. Uh, basically started for my own purposes, my own bow hunting. A lot of people don't realize that uh, at one time I was a serious, hardcore bow hunter myself. Um, traditional guy. I used to build my own bows and hunted uh, deer, bear, caribou, uh, all with my homemade stuff. But the dog trailing was a result of just trying cool. to recover my own animals and for friends. And so I guess we're going on like four decades. Uh, and I call it, it's gotta be about 35 years, I guess now. So yeah, <laughs> we've been doing a long time. I've literally run okay. uh, between practice trails and the real thing, literally thousands and thousands and thousands of trails. Now, uh, today you use bloodhounds, um, but you started with German Shepherds, and you did a lot of tracking uh, in Canada. Maybe explain that a little bit, um, tracking caribou and bears, yeah. how that differs from what you're doing with whitetails. Yeah, um, well, that that actually is my start with bear dogs. Uh, I didn't hunt with bear dogs, uh, but when I had uh, hit one with a bone who was having difficulty finding it or friends uh, had buddies in Ontario. Uh, we would go and borrow some bear dogs from some other friends that did actually hunt with dogs. And so it was almost a little bit accidental that I got into this. We were using those dogs in an attempt. And then actually I had a friend or two uh, who uh, had hound dogs and they would sometimes get involved a little bit. It was hit or miss, but it did work enough that I could see that there was real potential in having a dog for finding wounded game. Now, the problem was those dogs were species specific to bears, so they weren't opposed to sure. switching off on a hot trail uh, of an unwounded bear. If there was okay. something more enticing, they were on it. So I, I See you, Dan. Yeah, pretty much. So I saw fairly early on that you really needed something that was trained specifically for the task. And so that's uh, how I embarked on my journey. Um, and, uh, you know, it was basically self-taught. I didn't know anybody else that was doing it. Or Back then, you know, there wasn't the kind of hunting information that there is now. Uh, about anything hunting related, not even close, and certainly not sure. blood trailing dogs. So, uh, basically, it was uh, a learning process over over many years. But I had enough success, and something just clicked 
with the whole process. And for me that, uh, I, I just dove in fully. And I mean, I got to the point where it is, this is what I do. And it's basically all I do. And I haven't bow hunted myself for many, many years. I don't know, maybe 20 years now. Okay. Uh, but I did now there's, yeah, go ahead. There's many celebrities, uh, in the hunting industry that you're one of the first calls they make if, if they hit a deer and can't find it. Uh, they know between you and your bloodhounds, uh, if that deer's dead, there's a good chance you're going to find it. Kind of highlight uh, some of the hunting celebrities that you've worked for. Well, uh, pretty much. I've any, any of these TV show folks that are hunting in the Midwest have trail for just about all of them. I mean, there's there's a handful that I haven't, but you know, I've done a lot of work for the juries, and of course they've got a a bunch of team members, so a lot of those folks. And so from there on down, uh, uh, then through those associations, a lot of, uh, uh, well, not a lot, but a fair amount of professional uh, athletes, uh, particularly uh, baseball players, uh, hunting hunting season okay. fits their schedule very well. And, and uh, sure. of course, some yeah. of them, uh, the, the top of the top players and it's they've uh, obviously done well for themselves financially so they can pursue the the trophy whitetail game at the highest level and so i i get to uh trail and be on literally some of the finest deer hunting ground in north america and there we're trailing that caliber of deer so it's it's uh pretty awesome they they, they do rely on me they know that and you know nothing's a hundred percent, but by and large, I feel if the deer's dead, we'll we'll find it. I'm not saying I've never missed any over the years. You do that many, you're gonna uh, maybe miss something sooner or later. Make a mistake. Make a mistake, yeah. or just there's so many variables uh, involved in following a trail. And I'm not talking the easy stuff. The easy stuff any old dog could run, but the the difficult stuff and when things are maybe not managed like they should have been or uh, just variables uh, that just are out of your control or the deer has done something exceptionally uh, baffling. I mean, we've, we've figured out uh, backtracks literally that were a quarter mile long. That's not easy. Stuff like that, um, that uh, can really throw you for a loop and you, you compound a whole bunch of weird stuff and and let's face it, that's what I'm getting called in on is the weird stuff. I, I'm the guy that sees all the fluky weird stuff, and I got to deal with it. So we're, we're uh, um, I mean, I basically train, 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 so I can have the highest percentage possible. I just It scares me to ever sure. think about missing something that I could have come up with or should have come up with. So. We go the extra mile, literally on the trail and uh, in practice. Now, a difference between maybe the celebrities and the average Joe uh, sometimes is uh, the average Joe calls you when they've exhausted all possibilities and can't find their deer. You've worked with the celebrities enough that they've kind of sort of learned that if there's any chance that we can't find this deer, boy, we better call Tracker John. So they call you early, and that can make your job a little easier, right? Well, sometimes it can make it a whole lot easier. And, I mean, it's always 
well, not always, but often it's guesswork. You don't know truly what the hit is, or even if you know about where the arrow hit, you don't know exactly what get, got cut. So fractions of an inch can make a, a huge difference. So there's always guesswork on how you should handle a, a particular trail, but usually going later rather than sooner is, is the better better plan. But yeah, people can shoot themselves in the foot basically by uh, uh, handling things wrong, beating the trail all up, letting it go cold and old, and uh, then expecting miracles out of the dog. Whereas if it had been managed properly, right from the start, um, the odds could have been better and things could have been a lot easier. And, you know, when you're talking about people that are so invested in, uh, in, uh, managing, uh, for upper end deer and, and, a balanced age structure, um, they've got so much invested in, in their, their hunt and in, and finally getting a hit on an animal that it just doesn't really make sense not to, um, handle things for maximum results right from the start. The moment they suspect they've got a problem, well, that's really when you should at least be quizzing me um, about what I think about it and come up with a plan or whether I need to get involved or not. So, sure. so yeah, the, now, they definitely handle it differently. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, that's uh, important to note that TV guys in particular, their their livelihood depends on uh, dead deer on the ground. Um, so you're that much more important to them than, uh, say, an average guy who's just out deer hunting and he, and he shoots a big buck. So uh, there's pressure on them to uh, find the deer. Uh, absolutely. And then pressure on me to find it. <laughs> you know, everybody thinks, oh, man, yeah, what a yeah, awesome, sure. fun thing that must be to do. And yeah, sometimes it is, but... I, I tell you, by the end of the season, I'm feeling pretty stressed out because I'm, I'm dealing very often with stressed out people. Uh, you know, nobody likes potentially losing something or, or wounding an animal. It's not a good feeling. And uh, so I, I, I show up on a, on a track and, you know, there's the guy. He's, he's all stressed out and that can't help but transfer over to me and, and once I show up, it's all on sure. my shoulders, and it's sometimes uh, uh, unfairly. It goes, well, how good is your dog? And instead of, well, what was the hit, really? And, uh, you know, most of the people <laughs> I've worked with, they understand what the, what the game is and, uh, you know, how it goes. But, uh, it's, it's you know, there's, there's definitely pressure when, when you know, it's uh, somebody's buck of a lifetime or it is somebody's livelihood. And, um, it's, it's a, that's a little different ball game. The first time I ever interviewed you, uh, one thing I'll, I'll never forget about that is you told me you see people, uh, at their lowest of lows and their highest of highs, and it can go from, it can go from their lowest low to the highest high in a, in a matter of minutes or even seconds. Actually, uh, uh, I remember you telling me you had a guy, yeah, go ahead. Uh, you told me you had a guy, you know, pick you up and hug you and kiss you on the cheek and, you know, go crazy. <laughs> well, figures you'd want to talk about that. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> uh, hopefully I get the chance to take somebody from their lowest low and flip it around to the highest high. Uh, 
And it does happen in a millisecond. I mean, at that millisecond where they recognize there's their deer in front of them, it's not lost. They've got it. Uh, uh, you are flip-flopping somebody's emotions to such an extent so quickly that, yeah, some guys lose it. I mean, I, I see people drop into the ground and thankfulness and prayer and uh, yeah, <laughs> people give me the bear hugs and man kisses and uh uh, yeah, they're, they, they sometimes lose it. I've literally seen grown men break down, bawling their eyes out like little children. Um, just the emotional flood is just so intense and they're so relieved. They instantly have a mad crush for tracker job. <laughs> okay. <laughs> next, next topic, please. <laughs> why blood? Why, uh, why bloodhounds? You started out with German Shepherds. Uh, you've made the switch to bloodhounds. Uh, you have several bloodhounds. Um, maybe explain that a little bit. Um, well, you know, we talk about blood tracking or blood trailing, and and that can encompass many different things and many different styles, many different uh, customs and uh, rules and regulations, depending on what part of the country, different terrains. Uh, there's, there's, you know, many, many differences. So what's right for one person may or may not be right for conditions and another person someplace else. And that's very much the case, uh, with the very different things that, that I've done with my dogs. You talk about the German shepherd and that was, you know, pretty much what I used in Canada, uh, through my, uh, 20 year caribou hunting um, career and that made perfect sense there there you know that was my own clients we could put the dog on at optimal times uh, so the trailing in many ways was fairly straightforward but yet we were living well we were basically living in the wilderness under some pretty rough conditions sometimes traveling and whitewater canoes, freighter canoes, the dogs in and out of float planes, uh, jets to get to the far north. The, the dog had to be able to handle a wide range of things. And the German... Bloodhound shepherd, can't do that, huh? Well, I'm not saying they can't, but it would be uh, probably more difficult to get that rare individual that would excel at all that. And the bloodhound... Sure been bred for one thing and one thing only and that's trailing you know for i don't know a thousand years or more um it's a specialty dog whereas a german shepherd maybe it's not going to be the very best at a particular task but it's going to be really good at a whole bunch of tasks and uh you know, using all its senses, uh, being very obedient, uh, really tuned in, uh, which is what I needed up there. It was a dangerous environment with bears and wolves and um, just the, the, the traveling. And, and, and a dog that ran off in the far north would be a dead dog. So for that, the German Shepherd was a pretty dang good fit for me. And I just really like German Shepherds, grew up with them, and uh, I just really like them. But the, the deer thing, the, 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 the trophy-oriented trailing that I do, which can be under very difficult trailing um, conditions, uh, weather and time and uh, when the stakes are so high, 
I need a specialty dog with the very best nose possible. And in my book, that's the bloodhound and it fits, fits my scenario for the, for that type of trailing that I'm doing. I really can't imagine using anything else. Now that's not to say that many other species, uh, breeds of dogs, um, can't do blood trailing and do it, do it pretty well. But for my particular niche, I think the bloodhounds the best. If I thought there was something better, I'd have several of those. I've got presently, I've got four bloodhounds and a German shepherd. And, and one of the reasons that nose is so important is you're doing cold trails, right? I mean, you're not always doing hot trails. You're, you're getting calls and going in on uh, shots that were made several days ago. That's, sometimes the case or sometimes we deem a, a hit such that we'd be better waiting 24 hours uh, before going in on it. And, and then there's all these wild card things that can happen. It gets pushed by coyotes or just makes a beeline and, and really goes a long ways or the weather is the wind is, is bad and the heat and the sun and all things that uh, tend to destroy scent. You know, they can pile up on top of that. And uh, there's just some times that you're working, you know, really difficult stuff. And the scent to begin with wasn't that strong. Maybe it hit high in the body. There's no exit wound. Um, you're basically just working faint drifted scent that came off that wound. Uh, maybe, you know, the, the, the hit, as often as the case, is, is less severe than the guy thought. And, uh, so you're, you're doing something that's more superficial and hence there's a lot less scent to begin with, uh, difficult to, under any circumstance to trail that. And then you throw in some, uh, difficulties on top and you got a, you got a tough situation. So I need all the nose I can get. If I could, if there was something that I thought was better than a bloodhound, I'd run to go get one. Sure. Uh, what's your rock star dog right now? Do you, do you have one that you feel like, man, uh, she's the one. Well, you know, it's interesting. You say, well, I'm working a bloodhound. And so people are supposed to know exactly what that is. Well, you know, dogs are just like people. They've got different personalities. They work differently. Uh, presently, uh, for my season this year, I'm carrying three dogs and I've got, the utmost in confidence in all three. I'm probably in that regard in a better situation right now than perhaps I've ever been. Now, my old famous rock star, as you term it, dog was Jesse, who retired uh, season before last. Was her last season? So what's that? 2015 was her last season. Yeah. Uh, she she worked with me for 11 seasons here in the Midwest. Just, uh, it was just the perfect storm of things that happened that, uh, that she had such a long career. I'd lost two dogs, the, the, my best dogs, just uh, prior to her starting uh, due to uh, some autoimmune diseases. I just had a bad, we had a very black, black, bad cloud come over us and went through a rough time losing my dogs. And so I, I had no choice, but to start with Jesse and she was just exceptional right from the get go. And she was working and doing great work at two years old. And so she just had a nice long career. Well, you know, age finally catches up and 
for a bloodhound, she was very long working and very long lived. She's still leading the good life at home, laying around and eating and enjoying the soft life. But she did good, <laughs> good work up until the age of 11, which I would say is very rare for a bloodhound. Uh, so since she's retired, uh, and I had that problem with the, the diseases with the dogs, and, and they were unrelated dogs, unrelated autoimmune diseases. I really, we really just had one black cloud after another for that little period. But it, what it did show me is, you know, I got to have multiple dogs in case something happens, unfortunate to, to one or two. And uh, so that's why I'm carrying three. I try to split up, keep the ages staggered a little bit, but because I lost those two, it's not staggered quite as much as uh, I would have preferred, but I've got three dogs I can call on and I feel really great about using any one of them, but they're, they're all different. They got different personalities, they different working styles. Uh, Haley, my, my, uh, she's a all predominantly black colored bloodhound, which is very rare. That's a recessive coloring in a, in a bloodhound. But at any rate, she's just exceptional nosed. Uh, just, she's just all, she's all in and probably the most naturally talented. But when you watch that dog, she's often fast enough Her her nose isn't, she doesn't keep it tight to the ground. It's that good. She doesn't need to. She almost gives you the appearance sometimes that she's just out for a stroll. Whereas Janie, okay. which is currently my youngest dog, and uh, maybe I favor her a little bit. Uh, she's more nose to the ground. You can hear that nose working. The Hoover, something. as I like to call her. Yep, the Hoover. Uh, literally, you can hear her sometimes from 30 yards away, uh, really sucking it in and out and uh, almost like pig scenting. Uh, it, so it, they're, they're all... They're all quite different, and uh, you, you need to work them all to, to learn those differences and be able to interpret and read what your what your dog is doing. Because trust me, handling Janie and watching Janie is very different than than watching Haley. Um, but yet, even though Haley's not <laughs> as dramatic uh, or in appearance, uh, she's done stuff that's just mind-blowing and, and and i'm saying mind-blowing so that you know it's some just Says unbelievable something. stuff yeah now a few few years ago you called me um and you said I'm, I'm about to go in a new direction with this tracking thing uh i think i'm gonna get a crow and i remember laughing out loud uh at, at first uh maybe explain uh to people the idea behind uh purchasing an actual crow it's an african crow um, your goal, uh, with tracking with a crow? Well, yeah. And people ask, well, why did you do that? Uh, and yes, yeah, so some people do, to do laugh. I think when I mentioned it to the jury, that was their reaction too. But as they're laughing, they're saying, you know, that is just totally awesome. And, and I guess that's one of the main reasons I did it is just because it would be totally awesome. Uh, I guess I've always kind of, even since I was a kid, wanted to have a, a crow or a raven. And uh, in my time in the far north, which was quite spectacular, being up there with my dog and literally getting 
dropped into places that have never been hunted or fished before and being in a place that's the same right now as it was 2000 years ago, no difference whatsoever. Uh, and then just be strolling across that open or semi-open area with my dog. And it just, just was a, an, an incredible experience, but there will be few instances where ravens and generally they're you know, almost kind of timid birds is, but there, there were a couple instances where the raven, I don't know, it was curious or whatever, but came down and was just above us and kind of just hung with us as we traveled, checking you out, traveled along. Yeah. Checking us out, uh, but just kind of like tagging along. And, and I thought, okay, oh, that'd be totally awesome. If in addition to my dog, I had a, a raven or something like that, that was part of my team. And so I guess, part of it was just i wanted to do it just because it would be great <laughs> but the the concept and, and go ahead aren't they considered to be uh you know one of the smartest smartest birds uh intelligence yeah. possibly crows ravens, as high as a dolphin in, yes anything in the corvid family uh, they claim that they're their smartest of all birds and they do rank them similarly to intelligence wise to like chimpanzees or, or dolphins. I mean, way up there. Wow. And that's probably true. Um, but, uh, and, and you, you, you did mention that it's a, an African pied crow pied as in pie bald, two colors. It's got some white around its uh, neck and on its chest. And the reason I got that is because it's absolutely illegal to possess a native crow or a raven. Had that not been the case, I would have simply uh, got myself a baby raven from up in the hills and uh, had at it. But it's absolutely impossible to get any kind of paperwork to to do that. It's not like falconry where you can get licensed and uh, go get yourself a, a hawk uh, from the wild. Uh, so hence, I had to get an exotic uh, ver- uh, variety, the African pied crow, which is basically a small raven. And even though it's called a crow, it's genetically closer to a raven. It's got a beak like a raven. Uh, but the, the basic concept that I've got is that the, 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 the bird would kind of stay fairly close to me. I mean, it's not supposed to search the whole woodlot. I'd like it to stay within a hundred 150 yard radius and kind of just search from the air as the dog is showing us, you know, the direction and then taking us in the, in the basic direction. And, you know, is it ever gonna, it's never going to replace the dog, not even close because without the dog showing you where to look, it'd just be another form of area or blind searching, which I'm never keen on because you can be looking miles away from where the animal actually is. Um, plus it gives you no evidence until you actually find a carcass. If you find a carcass. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like having a live drone. It's a live drone. Yes. Yes. Which can, but with intelligence. So, uh, like I'm training my bird to an antler. So theoretically I could also shed hunt as well. Uh, when, you know, is it, am I going to find a whole bunch more deer because, I, I was able to pull this off. No, it, theoretically, it it could come up with one or two others uh, that I might not get someday. Uh, it could speed things up, but by and large, it's just awesome. <laughs> That's 
why I'm doing it. And, and whether to, to what degree it's ever going to work, I, I don't know, but it's, I'm having fun with it. And basically probably a pretty crazy thing to do, but since I'm into it, um, yeah, I think I it's neat. It's a neat bird. I've, I've met the bird and you know, it's just cool to look at and, and you can kind of look at it, look in its eyes and you, you can tell, I mean, the wheels are turning. It's, it's, uh, not a dumb bird at all. Oh, no, it's, it's pretty fun. It keeps me entertained. And, uh, the interaction with the dogs, I wasn't really sure at first when I, you know, I thought about this project long and hard before I ever got started in it. And, you know, I didn't know, was it even going to be possible to keep the dogs from killing it and, you know, having it for lunch. And so I was kind of worried about that. And that turned out to be easier than I expected. Um, especially with all, but the, the, the black one who I think would like to eat it for lunch and don't yeah. just because she knows I'm there. <laughs> the others that, that there's a, like my German shepherd and my smallest bloodhound, that bird, the bird is rough on the dogs. The, the bird, the, you know, he's a shady, his name is shady and he is a shady little character. <laughs> you know, he'll sneak up on the, the dogs, he'll fly down and peck them. He'll sneak up and pinch their tail or give them a pinch or a peck. Uh, he'll, I've got a couple different flight pens that I, that I'll keep them in sometimes during the, during the day. And, you know, he's smart enough. Uh, he'll have a piece of food in there or even a stick, something, something that he knows the dogs might be interested in. And he'll put it right up against the, the chain link of this kennel and to lure the dogs there. And the dogs come in to, you know, sniff it or try to get it. And, you know, he swoops in and gives them a peck on the nose. He's, he's devious. So <laughs> geez, I, I wonder what, I wonder, I wonder why the one dog wants to put barbecue sauce on him and uh, eat him for lunch. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's the funny thing is this crow has a, you know, he's smart enough to know which dogs he can do anything without any repercussions. I mean, a couple of dogs know so well that they're not supposed to do anything that they won't do anything no matter what that bird does to them. And so he targets them, you know, they, that's a that's a free target. No worries there. And he's rough on him. Now the black dog, he knows that he has to play a more careful game with that one. And so he's <laughs> sneaky, sneakier and more cautious and, and will uh, make his exit faster and, and quicker, but it's, that's a dangerous game. Somebody makes a mistake and it only takes one big paw or a snap to, to end that. So it's uh, in some ways it's all a crazy project, but crazy cool. Yeah. Now talking talking about Jesse, um, your retired dog. Now she found uh, the biggest buck you've ever recovered. Uh, maybe for a couple of minutes, just highlight that trail and and highlight how big a buck it actually was. Well, yeah, it's always fun to end up standing over some giant, and and that is the biggest we've ever recovered to date. I've probably I don't know recovered a, a, a big handful of 200 class deer over and probably trailed another couple big handfuls of 200 class deer that weren't dead. Um, but that particular one we did get to stand over and it was 31 scorable points. Wow. It grossed 225 and, uh, actually, uh, for a non-typical, uh, was pr- 
pretty typical frame, so it actually netted 223, which is shocking that for a 225 yeah, that's, that's year to only uh, miss two inches on a on a net score. For me, gross, it's all good, so I don't really pay too much uh, about net, but it was kind of interesting that it was that high on the net side. Uh, so that was a really cool trail, and uh, the another dog had been called in and five guys. And I think they had looked for like a day and a half unsuccessfully before I got called in. And I really wasn't that keen on, I almost turned it down because I don't know, I had copped the rightfully or not. I'd copped a bit of an attitude like, well, it wasn't worth calling me in right from the get go. Why mess it all up and now expect me to pull a rabbit out of the hat. But I, I realized sure. after talking to him that the, the hunter didn't, uh, he didn't know me. Some of the others had been involved with me before. I'd in fact, just the, the week before and recovering 195 inch drop time buck. Uh, so I was a little, a little bit annoyed, but I ultimately agreed to do it. Uh, they put us on. Well, they said, well, do you want to start where the other dog left off, which like was like a mile away? Or do you want to start at the beginning? I said, we'll be starting at the beginning. and almost immediately I could tell my dog was picking up on it, but she's probably circled for about five minutes, making sure that uh, she had all the information. And then then we started off and went through some really thick briars. And so they're giving, they gave me a little feedback. Yep. That's exactly what the the deer did. And, And I wasn't asking where I went. I wanted the dog to do it. Then we came to a cut bean field and I knew that was going to be the make or break point because you know open dirt field basically doesn't hold scent very well and i thought well there's going to be an issue there it is if we can get across this and back into the woods i thought we probably are in good shape and uh dog hung up just a little bit at the very start of the bean field but then she kind of locked on and off we went we made it all the way across and started down the, the edge of the field and we're about to break into the woods. And I looked back to see what, where the hunters were and what they were doing. I see a smile on his face and kind of gives me the thumbs up and says, yep, that's the only sign we found on the trail. There was a small piece of fat uh, right on the edge. There wow. She just went and I thought, okay, game on. And uh, we didn't, we, we crossed the creek and some grass and, didn't go too much farther and uh i could see the guys were behind me were real happy because we were diverging from the path that the other the other dog had taken and uh so that gave them a lot of hope and and i was pretty confident she was pretty well locked on and we didn't go too much farther and all of a sudden she just yanks me into this blowdown it was a cottonwood tree it was kind of over on its side with big branches and uh just yanks me in there and I quit go in there under all that canopy and, and there was the buck. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, that hunter was Mike Hyma. He actually is from my hometown and that's how I met you. Uh, he called me one day and said, I have an article idea for you. I mean, I think you could sell this article to North American Whitetail. Um, this blood tracker guy, he came in and, and found my deer in 30 minutes and we had been searching for it for, for several days. Um, those trails like that don't always end well, obviously. And, and sometimes they take way longer in 30 minutes, correct? 
Well, yeah, I mean, 30, 30 minutes is a pretty good performance. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, when they'd already spent that time and gone that kind of distance. Now it turns out that dog once, you know, it, it basically left the trail and then took him on a joy ride. Uh, so yeah, things don't always go like that. And, and as I said, I've, I've trailed more big deer that weren't dead than were dead. And I mean, you think about it, uh, I'm getting calls that, you know, somebody's just shot the, the this tremendous trophy, the buck of a lifetime or the TV show person, uh, you know, something that's a must have. And where if you were, you know, trailing lesser animals just for meat or something like that, if, you know, if things were dismal sounding or looking, you might not even try, but, you know, we're trying on cases where it is dismal and we don't think we're going to come up with the deer, but, you know, I've had people ask me, well, is there any chance at all? And I said, well, yeah, it's a small chance. And I said, well, let's do it. If there's any chance, that's better than no chance. Let's do it. So yeah. you go into those things, you know, you're probably going to be knocking your head against the wall and you're not going to break through. Um, and you work harder and longer and, you know, you still, uh, you know, at least hopefully you're able to prove what the deer did and, and you know, that it's not dead in the bushes someplace where they're in some thick cover that they think it is. And so that can be very valuable in itself and in, in proving that it's not, and not what they thought it was and that, you know, this deer probably is still on its feet and let's pull the plug and hopefully you see him again. So, you know, when you're talking about uh, success rates or not getting deer, it all depends what you're, what you're working on. If, you know, I want sure. to cherry pick my calls and, and <laughs> go on some, you know, really good hit deer and, you know, just start banging them out. Well, yeah, well, we probably run a big number up and, you know, sound great. Oh my God, my dog's five for five, 10 for 10, 15 for 15. Well, it's really pretty meaningless because all you did was run a bunch of easy stuff. I, you know, no offense, but I, I kind of hear that from beginners that are starting out with their dogs. And, oh, I got the yeah. most awesome dog. He's, he's five for five. And, well, that's nice. It kind of shows he, you know, knows the game. But basically, that tells me nothing. In fact, it probably tells tells me something I don't want to hear because you're not doing tough stuff. You're, you're doing you're doing you're not challenging stuff. the dog. I mean, the dog's not no, getting a challenge no, or, no, you're, or learning, you're, you're, learning anything. Right. You're training the yeah. dog to just blast out easy stuff. So that brings up a point, you know, uh, what trails do you decide to take and what ones do you not? I mean, you work with outfitters and obviously, uh, when you're sitting there at Illinois connection and there's a big buck that's shot and they can't find it. I mean, that's a call, uh, most of the time you take, uh, but when you get outside calls, you know, what determines if, yeah, I think I'm going to drive two hours and go look for this buck, or in some cases, six or eight hours, uh, you know, what calls do you take and what calls do you go, nah, sorry, guy, I, or, I just can't Or even it. days. I mean, I've done trails yeah. that are days and days old. Wisconsin, um, and yeah. Well, there's there's lots of factors that might influence the decision. If, I mean, if everything were equal, if everything was equal, I I would kind of pick those ones I thought the odds were higher of recovering the deer. Um, if every, if all things, all other things were equal, but all other things are never equal. 
So is it uh, a long-standing good client? Uh, how far away is it? Uh, what is the deer? What do we believe the hit is? Um, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. Oh, I'm sitting out on my porch and just an antler fell on my head, literally. <laughs> was up there you go. Beam. <laughs> Ouch. Was that the, was that the drop tide, Buck? <laughs> Someday That's... a deer's going to kill me. <laughs> You've had a couple close calls like that, too. Uh, yep, and pinned to the ground more than once. Uh, but as far as what trails to, to, to take, I mean, there's lots of factors that, that, uh, that, that go into it. And I don't know that I have any specific formula. I kind of got away all that stuff and how busy I am. And, and then, you know, you mentioned that I do work with a few outfitters that are, um, that I've got a certain program with. And so if, you know, they've got something, I've got to take that. And then taking the outside calls is uh, subject to my availability. And then I start weighing those other factors. Have you ever tried to figure out uh, what your success rate, you know, is or, you know, calls versus recovery? I'm not big on that because it, uh, again, it is kind of meaningless. It all depends on what kind of trails you're taking. So in the early years, I used to keep careful records. I'd keep careful records, uh, mostly on my training, uh, uh, tracks because to me, that's where you really learn stuff. And I've got, I've got, uh, notebooks, literally three inches thick, multiple notebooks like that with records of all my trails and information and comments and, but I kind of stopped doing that long ago because uh, I wasn't learning that much more from it as for the time invested in filling out the, the stuff. And then, like I say, the, you know, the success rate is kind of immaterial unless you really evaluate what the trails were. And that's kind of hard to do. I mean, the guy that's trailing everything is buddy shoot uh just to get his dog uh, some experience or to rack up some numbers or or is it me taking some call from some guy that you know we're thinking the odds of success are probably uh one out of ten and you do a bunch of those well your success rate isn't going to look so good and and then as i always say things go in streaks you might have a streak where just the way it is the uh, all the deer are dead and you end up finding the streak of deer or you might do a streak of trails where it's all superficial hits and you don't get any of them. It it, it does go yeah. in streaks. And uh, so that kind of reminds me, I don't know. That, that reminds me of a story I did for North American whitetail with you where if I remember the number correctly, you found 696 inches of antler in a 24 hour period where you basically didn't sleep. Uh, that's obviously a day where everything rolled your way, so to speak. Was that three bucks or four? What what was the number there? I don't even remember. I think it was four, four bucks. Uh, and yeah, everything stacked in our favor, favor uh, to, to do that many trails in a short period of time and then have every single deer be dead and then have a couple of them be really big. One was, I think, 204 inches, so it jacks the number wow. up in, the, in sure. a hurry. Uh, but, you know, we could have done those 
four or five, and none of them could have been dead, and I could have got zero inches of antler in 24 hours. So in that case, it just, yeah, things work to our favor. And, um, you know, I've got the dogs. If if uh, if it's there to be found and we get the right setup, we're, you know, we're going to bang it out. And so we've got four of those, and I think it was four deer in, in that period. And uh, so, yeah, it was just nice and, and, and it was good to stand over so many deer and have happy ending on so many right in a row. Obviously in these four cases, the trails were probably managed properly and you were called right away for sure. And that makes a big difference. A lot of guys don't know when they should get on the phone to find a local uh, tracker. Give maybe in closing a couple tips for the hunter uh, to consider, you know, if if you're thinking about hiring a tracker, here's some things to do, you know, beforehand to increase the odds of finding the deer. Yeah, and we, we touched on that a little bit as far as uh, when to call and, you know, whether to pound the trail before you uh, call somebody and it, you know, it does kind of go back to, well, are you really looking to stack the odds? Is it as high as possible in your favor? Well, if that's the case, then you make that call the moment you suspect you have a problem. Uh, but as uh, how to actually proceed on the trail. And then there are some similarities, even if you don't get a dog involved, things you ought to do. And uh, so I would start by saying when you've made your shot observe as much as you can carefully note where the the deer ran observe landmarks so you know where he ran and be able to find them later on in case there's not a blood trail listen as carefully as you can Uh, a lot of times you can hear the deer beyond where you can see them try to uh hear whatever you can that might be useful you know whether he's walking running you might hear him crash or even bed down or something uh and then stay in your stand for a period of time uh perhaps he 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 doesn't know what happened really didn't go that far uh and bedded down and now he's kind of wondering what happened and he's listening and watching and if you just stay care- quiet and carefully in your stand, well, maybe it'll expire right there or hopefully uh, at least not run off and, and make the trail all the worse. Now, that's that's the textbook. That's what you hope happens. A lot of times, even if you do manage things properly, you know, they're, they're, they're going to move on off and, and it's not like that. But there's the possibility that that happens, so don't want to spoil it. So oh, and- I would then, yeah, go ahead. Hunters make a lot of mistakes too, right? Where, uh, I mean, you've called me and said, you know, this hunter was adamant. He shot it here, he hit it here, and it ran over there. And not only was the hit in a different place, uh, you know, the deer went in an entirely different direction than he thought. It just shows that adrenaline uh, plays a role, and, and guys a lot of times aren't thinking clearly. They're not thinking clearly, and the mind's a funny thing. You, uh, I think, what I've come to realize is that uh, people want to see what they want to see, and the mind will accomplish that. They so desire to see. I mean, I've had guys talk about, have come back to camp. One, one outstanding case was 
the guy came back and said, I saw the arrow buried behind the shoulder, saw blood spurt out immediately. The deer ran off. And, you know, so I was like, well, we're going to scoop that one up and you go in and geez, my dog can't even find anything. It's like, whoa, whoa, what's wrong with my dog? And we circle and circle. And we're not coming up with anything. Circle bigger and bigger. And it's like, whoa, whoa, what's wrong? And in this particular case was a night. Go back in and uh, closer to the stand, start start again. And, and you know, after 45 minutes of looking, and then one of the guides says, oops, we found the arrow clean as a whistle. The deer hadn't even been hit. Wow. And yet in that guy's mind, he saw all that. He so wanted to see that, that his mind accomplished it. And he did see it. He That's saw amazing. something that didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing. But, the, you know, that happens a lot. Not maybe to that extent. but And then, too, you know, the arrows go so dang fast nowadays. Uh, sometimes it's, it's almost impossible to, to track them. And you don't know where it hits. So in my book... All information is a little bit suspect. Even um, TV, right? You've told me in the past I, that uh, yeah. you've watched TV, you've you've watched slow motion video from a from a camera that you know from a accomplished cameraman who's filming for a TV hunt, and it looks like the bullet hits in one place when you're wrapping your hands around the antler. You know, the next day it it was an entirely in a different place. Yep, I've seen that a couple of times where the hit on video appears eight, 10 inches from where it actually did. And I don't know how all that happens or how, how, what it, what happens to make that appear like that. But it, there's been a couple of cases we were totally fooled by video. Um, so that's why I say everything in my book is a little bit suspect, um, including my dog's work. Um, I'm always analyzing, uh, okay, well, my, my dogs, maybe they make a, a mistake one time out of a hundred, but I, you know, it's all on my shoulders. Is this that one time out of a hundred? I gotta do whatever I can to try to prove that, uh, prove against that to myself. So there's, you know, I'm, I'm questioning everything when I do a trail, I question the information from the hunter. I I question whatever we find. I, I question my dog's work. It's, uh, you know, there's a lot to think about and analyze. Something getting that back sticks, to, go ahead. Something that sticks out in my mind is uh, I interviewed Terry Drury one time about you. And he said, watching you working with your dogs is like watching fine art. The dog is kind of wandering around, kind of like a computer, just calculating information and and you're reading that information and determining, you know, what the next step should be. And and that's uh, you know, always stuck with me and that was an article I wrote many years ago, but it's kind of always stuck with me um how you're kind of yeah, working I, together as a team. I thought that was a pretty astute uh observation and and uh, goes along with the way I've always looked at it. It's not really a hard science. I mean, it's, we're not dealing with a machine here that's going to absolutely behave one particular way. And, to, and, and there's all these variables that aren't the same anyways. So it's more interpretive art to me than it is hard science. Uh, I mean, obviously there's hard science involved in uh, how a nose works and scent receptors and all that, but uh, there's so many variables you can't treat it like hard science, and there's all these subtleties 
with the dog's work and the subtleties of what's happened to the scent, what the scent was originally and what the terrain is and the weather factors and the age and all these things that um, affect things. And so you got to interpret all that as you're going along. So I, I think it is more interpretive art than uh, um, hard science. And that's what makes it so cool and fascinating. Sure. Before we finish out this interview, why don't you go ahead and give listeners some tips and tactics on trailing? I'm sure many of the listeners have years of experience tracking deer, but as a professional blood tracker, maybe there's a few things that you could teach them, not only about trailing their own deer, but also about when they should call in a tracker. Once you finally get to trailing the deer, and usually it's better to wait a little rather than go immediately. There are some cases where if you could maintain the trail, it might be better to go sooner, but by and large, later is better than sooner. But then the things you want to do is be marking the trail as you go along. I like toilet paper because it's biodegradable. You don't have to pick it back up again. Um, and it's easy to follow. Just throw a piece down. If, if, this, if the blood trail is sparse, you want to mark it. If it's not sparse, or even if it is, try not to walk in the blood. Because what's that going to do is uh, when you get to where the blood does peter out, now all of a sudden you've got all the blood on your boots. Uh, and as you search around, you're basically laying secondary blood trails. Now, can the dog figure all that out and work through it? Yes, but it's going to take time. And depending on how much you do beat up the trail beyond where your last, uh, blood and point of loss is, um, it could, it could, uh, delay things a lot and beat us up for no good reason other than, uh, we're trying to work through what you shouldn't really have done. Uh, so avoid that if, if you can. And, and again, if a dog is going to get involved and you do have access to, 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 to a well-trained dog, calling sooner rather than later is, is usually going to help your cause. So I'd say that that about covers it. Cool. Cool. Well, I appreciate your time. Uh, I know you have a uh, busy season ahead and probably some sleepless nights, so uh, thank you for taking some time. I hope so. <laughs> thank you for taking some time out of your schedule. You're welcome, and good luck to you. Have fun with uh, your turkey dogs and whatever hunting you do. All right, thank you. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye. That wraps up the first episode of the Drop Time Report. I'd like to thank our title sponsor, Redneck Blinds, as well as 4th Arrow Camera Arms, Winsent, Pine Ridge Archery, and Illinois Connection. In the coming weeks, we'll have new podcasts out, including an interview with a gentleman from Missouri who shot a monster buck that scored almost 200 inches. So make sure to come back to redneckblinds.com or wherever you download your podcast to listen to the next episode. Thanks, and have a great day.